0: Well, I'm excited to uh, be able to share with you this morning. Uh, I was thinking this week, I was very giddy because I was told last weekend that I might get the opportunity to preach this weekend, and so I've been having a fun weekend. You go between giddiness and almost barfing, typically, <laughs> and, uh, but I really love the chance to teach. I really love the chance to teach, and uh, this week was a good week. Uh, on Friday, I got to go to the SCHS Senior Year's Chapel and teach there. I'd never done that before. I'm usually with uh, the middle years there. And uh, on Wednesday, I got to go to a public school and teach on world religions in a world religions class, so that was fun. And now I get to be here on the weekend, and it's, it's actually a lot of joy. And I'll tell you why, because whenever you love to learn, it's one thing to love to learn, but the, the chance to share with other people that you really love is just incredible. So the chance to be up here and share with you some of the things that I've been reading about lately and, and thinking through, that's a huge validation of, uh, of what I've been learning about. So I'm very, I'm very, very excited to be here today. And I'm going to be talking about a, a topic that I think is really critical, and that's doubt. And I think that doubt has been uh, misunderstood in the church, so I want to I shed some light on it. And uh, if, you, uh, if you ever like, look up books on doubt, everybody has written a book on doubt. I mean, like literally everyone. There's always the popular authors, there's the 21 Days to Freedom authors, There are philosophers, deep thinkers from today and days gone by. Everybody has written on doubt, and I have read none of their books except for one. And uh, actually, this book that I read, I haven't even finished it. Um, God put this on my heart last spring. I was in a cell group with a friend, and uh, he was talking about this book that he read like a long time ago, like in the 80s. And um, it was an even older book than that, if you can imagine written in the 70s, and uh, when he talked about it, I just, in my heart, I just went, man, I really need to read that book. I need to get it, and I didn't, and this year in January, God convicted me of it during the prayer and fasting month, and so I ordered it, and it was a book on doubt called Into Minds uh, by Oz Guinness, and so I'm going to borrow from it a little bit this morning, add my own reflections, but it is a very incredible book. It's worth reading. I don't even know if it's in print. I've been trying to find a decent uh, copy but there aren't any. Mine is just falling apart because I ordered it used. But you know, in Jude, uh, verse 22, there's only one chapter. In Jude 1, it says this, Have mercy on those who doubt. One of the things that Jude wanted as he, as he closed the letter was to have, he said, have mercy on those who doubt. And so I want to pray this morning for us as we go into this message that God would have mercy on us. Heavenly Father, would you now send your Holy Spirit here? Would you minister to us? Would you guide us into truth? Would you open our hearts and minds to understand and encounter you? And God, for those of us who struggle with doubt, maybe big, maybe little, I pray, Father, that you would meet us in those as you graciously do and proved yourself to do over and over and over again. Amen. There are two reasons why I believe that doubt is important but kind of a tricky topic to tackle, but I think we need to do it in the church especially. The first reason is this, doubt is often considered just another word for unbelief, and that's really unfortunate. So if you go to someone and you say, you know, Pastor Tom, I'm really having some serious doubts, often the pastor will turn around and go, oh no, you're losing your faith, you're not, you you know, you don't believe anymore, and that's not true. The Greek word for doubt and the Greek word for unbelief are completely different words, they're not the same at all. And uh, the, our old English word doubt comes from Latin, uh, a word dubitare, which originally had the meaning of to choose between two things. To choose between two things. So doubt is having to choose between two things. It's an indecision. It's not unbelief. If you disbelieve something, you're not doubting it. You disbelieve it. You've moved past doubt, and now you're into disbelief. Those are two different things. This means that doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's somewhere on a continuum of faith. It is the midpoint. And I have an illustration here for you. It's just easier to see. If you have belief on one side and unbelief on the other side, then you would put doubt in the middle. You wouldn't put doubt on the end, you know? It's a little bit like this. I, I, would, I would liken it to what we talk about in sin and temptation. So if sin was on one side and tempt, or, or no sin on one side and sin on the other, it's kind of like Grace Fast on one side and Ray Yoder on the other, then <laughs> temptation would be right square in the middle. You know, you can't decide whether you want to be like grace or right. So that's temptation. You see, temptation is not sin. Temptation is not sin. It says in uh, James: each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires, then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and so on. And so you can see that temptation comes before sin, but temptation is not sin. And this is really important. You see, when we treat temptation as sin, we actually push people away, because it's impossible to live without temptation in life. As a result, we tend to treat, if we tend to treat temptation as sin, we place people in an impossible situation, and that's unfortunate, uh, because it's impossible, because you can't live without temptation. And if that happens, typically one of two things happens. Either they become guilt-ridden, shameful, and legalistic. In other words, they're shamed into keeping quiet about their sin or their temptation. Or they abandon what they believe to be an impossible Christian life and embrace the temptation and the sin that they couldn't overcome. See, you push people away when you say just because you're tempted... Just because you have a thought that you're tempted to do something doesn't mean that you're going to do it. Sin is what you do with the temptation then. It's the action that follows. So for the kleptomaniac who's addicted to stealing, victory is not stealing when you are tempted to steal. Sin is what you do with the temptation. And this Of course must be the case because jesus was tempted and yet he was without sin so we read that and we understand that of jesus but we don't understand that of ourselves that we can actually encounter the devil face temptation and not sin now compare this to doubt doubt is no more the villain than temptation is doubts come and they go some linger some are more powerful than others but doubt is not unbelief if we treat doubt as unbelief which, by the way, is sin, unbelief is sin, then people will either be shamed into silence about their doubts, or they will abandon Christianity because they can't find the answers that they need. They don't believe that they're out there. So it's important that we never treat doubt as unbelief or temptation to sin. Now, it's true that doubt is a step towards unbelief. It certainly is. It's a potentially very dangerous place to be. But it is what you do with that doubt, that is important. So that's the first reason I believe it's important to talk about doubt, but the second reason is is kind of opposite in an odd sort of way, but also very important. You see, outside the church, and even growingly, uh, increasingly inside the church, doubt is celebrated. It's celebrated, it's given a higher value than truth itself. you know that? Doubt is given a higher value than truth itself. Truth and reason, uh, the church is not immune to this attack on truth and reason either, this spirit of skepticism. Skepticism is systemic doubt. That's all it is. And it's unfortunate because you can't actually live ultimately as an as a true skeptic. So the the professors in the universities might tell you to be skeptical, 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 be a skeptical thinker, a critical thinker, they'll sometimes say, but you ultimately can't follow that to the end because eventually you'll have to be skeptical about your own skepticism. And that's a very, very difficult place to be and it's hard to get back to reality from there. How do I doubt that I'm a doubter? Well, then I guess I don't doubt. (laughs) If you doubt everything, If you doubt everything, you won't have any healthy relationships. Maybe that is true of the world, which are built on mutual trust. You won't learn anything. Learning is built on the trust of authority. And you won't enter into heaven because heaven is founded on trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. When this kind of systemic doubt enters the church, and it does, often under the disguise, you know, of academic learning or that sort of thing, we're... uh, uh, where we are taught to question everything, you actually will never find satisfaction because there will always be ten questions following every answer. Always. If you look up, you know, just the most basic thing, Uh, why is there something rather than nothing? A very basic philosophical argument. You'll find a Christian answer, a non-Christian answer. If you're satisfied with the Christian answer, and you Google that, you'll find five people who've disqualified the Christian answer. Then you'll Google their answer, and you'll find five Christians who've answered the five objections. It goes on and on and on. We have to find a way to answer questions and pursue truth without getting mired in this endless and exhausting skepticism with which university students are told that they should view the world. If we don't, we'll never address the legitimate doubts that we actually do face. You know, and it's interesting because in the Gospels, it was the skeptics Not the doubters, not the honest seekers who had a question about truth and were looking for it. It was the skeptics who Jesus had the hardest words for. It was the skeptics who knew the most about truth that he condemned the strongest because they should have known better. And in fact, the disciples who were the closest to Jesus often got the harshest reprimands. Why do you doubt? You have little faith. Because they were so close to the truth, they should have known better. Once you have encountered truth, to doubt the truth is frustrating to Jesus. It actually is. It's frustrating to Jesus. As Christians, we need to guide people through doubts as honestly and compassionately as possible and seek help from Christian leaders and thinkers when we ourselves face doubts and then ask the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth and then hopefully there will become value in what we doubted because there is value in doubt. You think about it for a second, this thing of value and doubting. If you doubt and you remain in doubt, which is cultural skepticism, and and don't remain in doubt, I should say, and honestly seek the truth, did you know you can only win? Um, Look at it this way. If you doubt and work to discover truth so that you no longer doubt, great! Success, right? Your faith is actually strengthened. On the other hand, if you doubt and discover you were right to doubt, in other words, you had a bad theology or a poor view of God, then you also win because hopefully the truth will displace that false assumption you had about God. So then to doubt, when carefully and honestly reasoned, it can be very, very valuable. It has been in my life. You know, think about it this way, the value of doubt. The disciples closest to Jesus all doubted him. Did you know that? We give Thomas a bad rap, which burns me because my name is Thomas. We give Thomas a bad rap, but every last one of the disciples struggled with doubt, some more severely than others. And this wasn't a mere misunderstanding of what Jesus said. It was a massive understanding compounded with doubt, which actually was pretty close to unbelief. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the disciples. And you know how we know that? They scattered. After he died on the cross, which he prophesied he would do, they scattered, forgetting the other prophecy that he would be raised up again in three days. They were nowhere to be found. And so this, we, we know that they doubted. But Jesus met them in their doubts, even as the resurrected Christ. He met them in their doubts compassionately. And do you know what happened as a result afterwards? With the exception of Judas, all of them became missionaries. All of them were severely persecuted for their death, uh, for their faith. And all of the 11, including, uh, including the one who replaced Judas, Uh, with the exception of John, were martyred for their faith. All of them. So they went from severe doubt to pretty significant faith. That is valuable. So maybe, if you're sitting here and doubting, an encounter with truth would actually make you so confident that you never look back, that you'd even be willing to suffer for Jesus. Now, all of you, or many of you, some of you may be thinking, doubt cannot be valuable because there's that verse. There's that verse in James, right? You know it, you're not quite sure where it is. It's the verse in James that says you shouldn't doubt, because if you doubt, you're like a, you know, a storm tossed in the wind. Well, it's found in the first chapter, in chapter, in verse 5. It says this, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives graciously without criticizing, and it will be given to him. But let him ask with faith, in faith, without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea. Driven and tossed by the wind, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. He is an indecisive man and unstable in all his ways. And there goes the entire message. One verse. But this verse doesn't actually contradict what I'm saying. And I think we can be a little bit simple-minded when we read verses like this. This verse isn't saying that you can't or shouldn't doubt, that it's sin to doubt. Now, if you sin in your doubt, that's a problem. But it's not saying that you can't doubt and it is true that you don't want to stay in stay in doubt forever but second peter speaks of god's patience it says the lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay but he's patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but all to come to repentance repentance means turning from one thing to another it's hanging between two and if you're hanging between a good option and a bad option and now you turn and repent and go towards jesus it's a lot like you turn away from doubt and you walk towards Jesus. So God is patient with our doubts. I think we often read James 1, verse 5 as if it were an immediate thing, without any process. You ask, receive, believe, all in a moment. And if you doubt, you're toast. But that, but but this is not, God is not like, um, you know, it's not like a pressure sale on dragon's den. This is our compassionate God who gives space for us to be real with him and who invites people on a journey towards him. And if you think about it carefully, it can't actually mean that all doubt is bad. You know how I know? You see, if I'm seeking wisdom on my job at Selfland, which I love, and uh, I sense in prayer that God is telling me to become an astrophysicist, which is really weird because I'm very bad at math, I would be right to doubt what I sense him saying. I would be right to doubt. In fact, if I were to abandon my pastor role here and go back to university to become an astrophysicist, everybody would think I was crazy, and it's true. I am right to doubt what I think I heard the first time. We need to wait for confirmation in many things that we hear, and you know what? If you are not a Christian and you're waiting till you have truth enough to become a Christian, that's better than jumping out without any knowledge about what you're doing. And I believe that people who search for truth find it. In fact, in 1 John 4, verse 1, we're even told to test the spirits to see if they're from God. They are deceiving spirits. They might speak a thought, a thought like become an astrophysicist. That must be from an evil spirit. No one else would tell me to do that. Until you are certain you've heard from God, doubt. Stay between the two. And then once you've determined it was truth from God, believe. You see, it's once you have the truth that you need to step into the truth with confidence, walk into it, and not doubt. Now, there are those who always fear deception. They say, how will I know whether I have even heard from God? How do I even know that he speaks? Well, this is very simple. All you need to do with your doubts is actually back up to the first one. You don't worry about what you think God is speaking if you don't even believe he can speak. You doubt that God can speak? Go to the Hearing God course. Build up some evidence for it. Practice it. And then as you grow and journey into it, you'll start to trust and not doubt what you sense God is speaking. This is really valuable. Your faith is strengthened as you work through these questions. It's very valuable. That being said, often, we don't get to the real potential value of doubt because we just see it all as one great big category. And it's not. It's not one category called doubt. You see, there's a big difference between doubting that God exists and doubting that God speaks. Very big difference, right? Many Christians who believe in God will go to heaven even though they're not certain that he speaks. So we have to not treat all doubt as the same. We need to recognize that there's differences in doubt. And Os Guinness, in his book, he gives seven families of doubt. Now, the families, they run into each other a little bit, but I'm going to just show you what they are. There's doubt from forgetting to remember, doubt from a faulty view of God, doubt from weak foundations, doubt from lack of a commitment, doubt from lack of growth, doubt from unruly emotions, and doubt from fearing to believe. And in these seven categories, there's two kind of subcategories. The first four would fall into these doubts that come from a deficiency of faith when you start to believe. In other words, you start on a bad foot or you bring false assumptions into your faith. And if that's how it is, then very quickly, or it doesn't even have to be quickly, if you never grow past those, those first problems in your faith, the deficiencies, then what will happen eventually is in 10 years from now, you're going to wonder why why it doesn't feel right anymore. Well, it's because maybe you didn't answer one of the questions properly at first. The second group, then, is deficiencies in your faith that you would kind of grow into. They're, They're ones that you've been a Christian now for a while, but maybe you changed churches and their theology is different and what they're teaching is not Right? And so you would grow into a false view of God, and that can lead to doubt. Now, we don't have time to cover all of these, um, so I'm going to just pick three of my favorites, and we're going to do those. But it is very important that while we talk about these things, you, you you need to understand one thing, and this is what I call the principle of the tipping point, and that is my own invention, the tipping point. So if you're writing notes, please give me credit, okay? This is the tipping point. If you would imagine a continuum of questions, this is the fulcrum or the needle, right? And all these questions exist within the the, the speedometer of faith. On one side, we have unbelief. On the other side, we have belief. And there's all these questions. At some point, even if you don't have all the questions on the belief side answered, there's a tipping point where you have enough and that is an amazing place to get to as a christian where you know that you know that what you believe is solid and true even though you don't have all the answers so if you're in doubt pray for that place i don't have all the answers i know that i don't have all the answers and i've done lots and lots of reading on some of the biggest questions that people ask but i've passed the tipping point and i've put my foot down and staked to ground that i am going to be a christian so let's look at these seven doubts, our uh, seven families of doubt. We'll look at the first one doubt from forgetting to remember. I like this one. In fact, I'm going to spend most of the time remaining on this one. The reason is this it's marvelously simple, it's deceptively simple. And yet, it's remarkably easy to miss. When you face doubts about God, His existence, His goodness, anything, you always start here. What do I mean? Do you remember? what you were like without Jesus. Do you remember the depths of your depression, that was me, when Jesus met you and rescued you? Do you remember the addiction, the fake friends, the lack of friends, the desire to belong? And do you remember the elation, the overjoy that you felt when you came to Jesus, when you met undeserved grace, that strange, inexplicable joy, the lure of authentic community? Do you remember these things? Because if you don't remember those first things, if you've forgotten who you were, what it felt like, you're actually opening yourself up to doubt. This is where conversion moments are, they're wonderful, because I know that a lot of people grow into their faith as a Christian. They grew up in the church, they grew up in a Christian family, they just are a Christian, and that's fine. People grow that way. But to have a conversion story where you remember, you look back and you say, ah, yes, there was a before and an after. I know what it's like. That's really wonderful. You doubt that God is real? Try remembering first. Now, this is a really good marriage principle, too. It's a very good marriage principle. When 15 years into your marriage, you wonder where has the romance gone? Try remembering. Remember what it was that made you fall in love in the first place. Retrace the steps of your honeymoon. Find that passion again. It's very, very important for your marriages as well as your faith that you practice the art of remembering. That's why Pastor Ray has this enormous document called the History of Southland. It's really long. And he can go to it and he can review it and find out the places that God has met us. His document is very much like what the ancient Israelites did. It's kind of like a boulder. Have you ever wondered like if you were to like step into the ancient landscape of the Bible and wander through, you know, I do this thing, you know, I, I have a good imagination so I do this thing, and there would be all these stones laying flat and then you'd come to a battlefield and there'd be one standing up. Or you'd walk over there and now all these 12 rocks are piled on each other. Those boulders, piles of rocks and altars were set up as a direct command of God to do what? Remember. But remember what? This is where we schooled the Amalekites, remember? Oh, yeah. Or, you know, you and your buddy, you set up a stone where you killed that, like, hairy giant. Like some sort of morbid photograph, you know, and you guys can bring your kids to it. This is where we killed them. No, that's not what it's about at all. That's not the right thing that you're supposed to remember. In Joshua 4... 12 stones are taken from the Jordan River and piled up as a reminder where the Lord did a miracle of them crossing the water. Then in chapter 23, Joshua gives his farewell address to the nation of Israel. And in chapter 24, what he does is he reviews their history, reminds them of where they came from. Then he reminds them of the covenant, and they agree to it again. And then you know what he does? He sets up a large stone under a terebinth tree. They were always setting up stones and and making altars under oak trees and terebinth trees. And why? To remember the covenant renewal, yes, but also to establish a place of worship. In fact, after that, that place was referred to as the sanctuary of the Lord. The sanctuary of the Lord. Earlier in Genesis, after Jacob stole his brother's birthright, Esau's blessing, and, or his father's blessing, and ran away, he fell asleep and used a stone as a pillow That night he dreamt and he saw Yahweh and the angels walking up and down from a ladder or a staircase to heaven. When he woke up, he knew that he had been in the presence of God. So what did he do? He took his rock pillow, set it up on end, anointed it with oil, and he named the place Bethel. Means the house of God. That's a sanctuary, a house of God. Many years later, when Jacob was returning to his homeland with his wives and his children, God told him, I want you to go and live in Bethel. And so Jacob told his family, we must get up and go to Bethel. I will build an altar there, another altar really, to the God who answered me in the day of my distress. He has been with me everywhere I have gone. So Jacob built an altar there and called the place the God of Bethel because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. What do you do at an altar? You worship. You worship. It's not just a place of memory, it's a place of worship. You see, this beginning doubt, forgetting to remember, it's it's not just forgetting about desire or wishing that you could remember things or that kind of thing. It's actually really important. In fact, to forget is a slap in God's face. This kind of forgetful doubting is steeped in ingratitude that has grown out of self-sufficiency you are now self-sufficient. You're not God-sufficient like you were at first. When you look at the battlefield, ingratitude has grown, and you think that you're the one who beat the Amalekites and not God on your behalf. But when you go back, and you remember, and you see all the things that God has done, and you review the journals, and you look at the family photographs, and and you see everything, those altars and stones... They stir up in you this gratitude, and the gratitude turns to worship, and that is the point. Remembering always produces worship. Gratitude that God saved you. If we're talking about marriage, gratitude that she married you. It's really important that you were a miserable wretch before you found God, and possibly your wife. If you're me- now, if your memory fails you, like you just can't remember what your life was like before Jesus, then how about this? Imagine what you would be like if you weren't a Christian. Just Imagine. Imagine what your life would be like then. And if your, mem- if your imagination is so terrible that you can't even imagine what that would be like, just look out the window. Pick up a newspaper. Review a little bit of history. Read the great atheist philosophers and see how fulfilled their lives were. When I was in university, we took a course. And uh, I took a course on, on poetry. Yeah, poetry. And uh, it was a whatever course, right? And... Um, what was really interesting is these poets, they're often the thinkers of their day, right? They're the you know, they're the troubled souls and that sort of thing. And the professor at the beginning of the year joked that all of the poets we were going to read except for one committed suicide. Yay! What? And then wow, I mean, what's going on here? The great thinkers, immortalized in their poetry, commit suicide. They have no hope. When we forget that there is no hope apart from Jesus, something we once so strongly believed, we are prone to doubt. But you know what? It actually gets worse than that. Living self-sufficiently in ingratitude actually drives us to do unthinkable things. In uh, 2 Chronicles 24, we read the story of Joash. Now, Joash was this fascinating king. In some Bibles, his name is Jehoash. But Joash was part of a royal family. And uh, when his, I think it was his father, died, his grandmother, Athaliah, decided to kill all of the living remaining relatives so that she could usurp the throne. And she did. But Joash was rescued by his nurse, and he was carried away and hidden in the temple by the priest Jehoiada. Jehoiada. I know, it's hard to say. Jehoiada. And then, once uh, Joash was seven years old, he was put on the throne, Athaliah was condemned and killed, and he ruled 40 years as the king of Judah. And, initially, Judah prospered underneath him. In the, chapter 24, verse 17, though, it says this. However, after Jehoiada died, the rulers of Judah came and paid homage to their king. Then the king listened to them, and he abandoned the temple of Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, and served Asherah poles and their idols. There was wrath against Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Nevertheless, he, that is God, sent prophets, that would be reminders, to bring them back to God, bring them back to the Lord. They admonished them, but the people would not listen. And then it got worse. Joash eventually killed the prophet Zechariah. And do you know who the prophet Zechariah was? That was the priest's son. King Joash didn't remember the kindness of Zechariah's father, Jehoiada, had extended him, but killed his son. Incredible. Incredible what happens when you don't remember. If you had talked to Joash when he was a boy or a young king, he would never have imagined that he would be capable of killing his foster brother one day. He killed his foster brother. It's not just the priest's son. It was actually his his stepbrother. He would never have imagined it. But this is what can happen when we choose to forget or we choose not to rehearse history. When we forget what was so important to us us at one time. When we forget the, the joy that bubbled up in us when we first gave our heart to Jesus. Remembering which leads to worship is critical to our spiritual health. Now, if you struggle with doubt, the first place to start is to remember. Remember what you were saved from, remember what you were saved for. And when you remember, let it draw you into worship from a grateful heart. So here's a task. If you want to move beyond this kind of doubt, this week, reflect on Romans 7, 13 to 25. And then out of that, worship with God with gratitude. And at the end, we'll put up... um, We'll put up these in a few more uh, Moving Beyond Doubts. So that's the first family of doubt that we'll look at. The next one is this. Doubt from lack of commitment. This is a really critical one. It's very important to talk about today. (coughs) Doubt from lack of commitment. I have a question for you. When you got married, did you have 100% certainty that you were completely in God's will? Now, I was pretty close. I was pretty certain But naturally, I wondered, asked God about it, asked for confidence. But then, on April 28, 2001, I committed my heart wholeheartedly to Tara and never looked back. Wholeheartedly. Can you imagine entering marriage with caveats? I take thee for better or for worse, unless you snore. In sickness and in health, unless that sickness is really gross or contagious. In riches, although more likely that than poverty, especially if the poverty is as a result of your spending. Caveats? right in your vows in your covenantal agreement that would like that would never get you to 60 years it might not even get you past the ceremony you can imagine that's a prenuptial agreement it's an exit contract from marriage it's in the opposite it's in direct opposition to what the bible teaches about the covenant of marriage Now, can you imagine if when I was standing at the front of the church with my Uncle Marv, the minister, and he said, Tom, will you take Tara to be your lawfully wedded wife? And I would reply like, huh, well, I guess so. I mean, it would have been a disaster. Terrible foundation right from the beginning. And yet this is exactly how a lot of people enter Christianity. Well, I I guess so. Or, Or they enter and they have caveats. I'll be a Christian so long as this, this, and this. Well, that's going to lead you to a serious doubt. Now, it might not be entirely their fault. Perhaps the evangelists soft-sold them. But on the other hand, many people simply refuse to commit these days. They don't persevere. They don't endure. And the reality is, if people in their faith cannot endure today in Canada, in this region, how on earth are we ever going to endure when we face opposition? How? How? The first sign of trouble in your marriage are you going to split? No. The first sign of trouble in faith or in your country, are you going to split? No, because I'm committed. I'm deeply committed. May I suggest something? If you aren't in, wholeheartedly, unabashedly and confidently, then you really aren't in. You aren't. And you are really, really open to attacks from the enemy. Now, that isn't to say that you don't have bad spells, dry seasons, difficult times, but it means that in your heart of hearts, you are determined that you will persevere. Do you know that making up your mind to persevere is absolutely, incredibly powerful? I am a really firm believer in the power of prayer and miraculous deliverance, but you know, I sometimes wonder if people wouldn't just make up their mind to stop sinning if they wouldn't be able to. I actually wonder that. Paul said in Romans 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is good, pleasing the perfect will of God. As our mind is reformed, we're actually able to, actually able to put a stake down and say, I am actually committed no matter what in first second corinthians he says we demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of god and take every thought captive to obey christ this is really critical it shows us that your thoughts your mind is a place your decisions are spiritual warfare did you know that your decision when you plant a snake in the ground and said i will believe this i will stand on this i will persevere and endure that that is actually spiritual warfare it's incredible The person who simply hasn't committed in their heart to stick with their faith leaves themselves wide open to doubt. So, how do you move beyond this kind of doubt? If you struggle with this kind of doubt, spend time reflecting on what is keeping you from completely surrendering to your heart to Christ. Possibly look for a leader, a cell leader, a pastor who can help you walk that through. Get discipled. And then this week, Reflect on Joshua 24, where the nation of Israel renews their covenant. They set up the memorial stone. And then ask the Lord what is keeping you from fully surrendering your heart to him. Do some inner healing. Maybe make personal ministry appointment for yourself. And then the last category or family of doubt that I'm going to talk about today is really interesting. And in fact, when I read it, my heart kind of, it fluttered a little bit and I went, huh, I really get this one. It's doubt from fearing to believe, doubt from fearing to believe. Now, what does that even mean? There is a fascinating little line in the account of the 11 disciples in Luke 24. It's just a little line. In Luke 24, what is happening is a whole bunch, uh, a number of the disciples are meeting in an upper room, and they're listening to a story. Now, this is after the days, uh, Jesus has already been reported to have risen, but not everybody has seen him yet. And they're listening to a report by a guy named Cleopas and his traveling partner. They were the disciples, excuse me, on the road to Emmaus, who suddenly were followed by Jesus, and he expounded on the scriptures for them, he explained it to them, he explained the prophecies of his birth and death and all these things, and they said, did our hearts not burn within us when he was explaining the scriptures to us? It's a wonderful story. They are now, with the other disciples back in Jerusalem, telling them about this story, and it's blowing their minds. As they were saying these things, Cleopas and his friend, he himself, Jesus, stood among them. He said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked. Well, I'm usually troubled if I see a ghost. And why do you doubts arise in your heart? Look at my hands and my feet. This is I, it's myself. Touch me and see. Because a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they were still amazed and unbelieving because of their joy, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? The Living Bible says it like this Still they stood there, undecided, filled with joy and doubt. You know what this is? This is doubt from its too good to be true. The disciples were waffling back and forth between belief and unbelief, undecided whether what they were seeing was reality. Now, this is fascinating. Jesus had predicted his resurrection. He had appeared to several women and disciples already. He showed them his scarred hands and feet, and still, still they disbelieved because it was just too good to be true. Too good to be, contr- too, too good to be true. It doesn't allow itself to believe for fear of being disappointed. Now consider any condition, any sin or struggle you have. Imagine that you read a a passage of Scripture and all of a sudden the words leap off the page and the Holy Spirit speaks to you deep in your heart about exactly what your challenge is, your struggle is, your sin is, your health issue, whatever it is. You read it and you go, oh! This verse was written for me. That's a rhema word. It's a word spoken to your heart. The, the Holy Spirit is taking the written word and, and making it a promise just for you. But can you receive it? You've struggled for so long. Is it true that now God really wants to deliver you? I had an experience exactly like that two months ago. There's a struggle in my life that I've been praying about and working on for a long, long time. And since fall, I've been working on it with doubled efforts, praying through a health issue I have. On March 11th, I was reading Exodus 13, and I came to this verse, verse three. It said, "Then Moses said to the people, "Remember this day when you came out of Egypt out of the place of slavery, for the Lord brought you out here by the strength of His hand." And it said this: "Remember the day that God took you out of Egypt, and I had my heart skipped a beat. Egypt is slavery. They were leaving slavery, and the Holy Spirit just took this, and he turned it around, and he said, Tom, you are going to leave this slavery that you have been in bondage to, and I read it and reread it. There was something about this passage that really spoke to me, and, but I had a hard time believing that it was going to actually happen, and then I read the next verse. Today in the month of Abib, you are leaving. So I looked at the footnote. Do you know when Abib is? It's March, April. Today, this month, you are leaving. I went from my devotions into a three-hour morning, uh, a, a three-hour prayer meeting with the staff that morning. And do you know that, I, that the minute I sat in the chair, the Holy Spirit reminded me of a, of a memory in my past that I had never dealt with. i had never dealt with it. And he showed me a critical piece that I had been missing in my search for freedom. He showed me a lie that I had believed there that I didn't even know existed. It was amazing. But you know, it was almost too good to be true. And now, of course, you all want to know, Was so I fully delivered. I don't know, but I do know this. I have more peace in my heart than I've had for a long time. So, if he hasn't changed my health, my circumstances, he has certainly changed something in in my heart. And do you know what? I think that sometimes, as miraculous as a change in circumstances or health is, it's also a miracle to finally be able to see that challenge with God's eyes and from his perspective. That's a miracle. I came to Southland weary eight years ago, really tired. I had been a youth pastor for four and a half years it's challenging to work in churches it really is it's hard and i was a young pastor then and i remember before taking the job here i i I was here watching a service and then i went to to the back and and with donovan and we were sitting in the you know the mcdonald's room with the play structure there and we were malachi was playing and and donovan was trying to convince me you need to come to southland tom you need to and you know quite frankly if i knew uh if i knew then what i knew now about donovan i might have been more skeptical Because he's a really good talker. Like, sometimes you'll go, how did I agree to do this? Oh, yeah, Donovan, right? Yeah? (laughs) You've had that experience, maybe, right? I had that experience. And we were really tired and scared that we were getting into another very political church that wasn't healthy and all this stuff. You know what Donovan told me? He said, Tom, think about the best possible work environment, the best possible one. It's better than that. That was hard to believe. You know what? It was true. You know what was the first thing? My wife and I, when we met with, um, with Pastor Ray and Fran for our job interview, do you know what we, were, what we talked about when we left? We both said it almost at the same time in the, in the, in the car. D- did you notice the staff was laughing? There was so much laughter in the staff on, in this church. And isn't it true that it's a joyful place? Some of you have come to Southland weary. You're scared to commit here because you don't know if you can fully trust another church after being hurt. Well, can you believe me when I say that we're human, but it's an amazing place? It's not too good to be true. Do you have such heavy addictions and bondages that you just don't believe that anyone, let alone God, would truly accept and forgive you? Are you willing to give that to Jesus? Have you been burned or disappointed in the past because you assumed something about God and it turned out to be different? You know, when I was worshiping in the first service, God gave me this picture of the glass walkway that extends out over the, the Grand Canyon. You might have seen pictures of it. You might have gone on it if you're crazy, right? It's this thick glass walkway. It goes stretching way, way out. They built one now, I think, in Jasper. Um, but, you know, some people will stand on the edge of that thing and look and go, oh, I, just, I would love to, you know? Other people, they're crazy. They just run out and jump, you know? Let's see. Let's see if it's strong enough. Don't jump on glass floors, right? (laughs) It probably is strong enough, but we shouldn't test it, right? (laughs) But there are people like that, aren't there? And then there's others who just stay back. Oh, I would love to go and look, but that is terrifying. You know, maybe you're like that. Some people, they run into freedom and into faith They pray and they act as if they actually believe what they pray. (laughs) And other people, they hold back. And they say, I just don't know. It's just too good to be true that God is that strong and can actually hold me up. If you struggle with this kind of doubt, fear for disappointment. There's only one fix. You need an encounter with Jesus because you need to start setting up boulders Across the pastures of your life, so that you can look back and see that God delivered when He promised He would. There's no shortcut to an encounter with Jesus. You just need to pursue Him. So, this week, if you struggle, reflect on Psalm 146, look at the promises in that Psalm, and ask the Lord what area of your heart He would like to speak the truth to. So, as a wrap up here, I just want to say a couple more things. Remember, doubt is not the enemy. Doubts, in fact, stand as a potential gateway to a stronger faith than you could ever have imagined. So don't fear you're losing your salvation when you're doubt, and don't tell someone that they are when they doubt. Just resolve to move past it. Search for the truth, and pray the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 131 for a quiet heart and a quiet mind while you draw closer to truth. That is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our heart would not be proud, that our eyes would not be haughty, and that we would not get involved in things too great or difficult for us. Instead, I ask that you would help us to have a calm and quieted heart like a child with his mother. Help us to be little children with faith like them. And Father, help us like you told Israel to put our hope in you both now and forever. Amen.